Good times, good times. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday. I am Pete. I am one of the pastors here. I am super glad that you are here with us as well. This week, we are kicking off a new series, and uh, this is going to be a series on finances, and we're going to take a different angle on it than we usually do. We actually teach on finances in a series every single year, and one of the reasons we do that is because money is the second most frequently taught about subject in all of the Bible after idolatry. It is also the second most common thing Jesus talked about after the kingdom of heaven, which we talk about all the time. And so teaching on finances is just part of what it means to listen to the Bible. This time around, we're going to be focusing on Jesus stories, parables and stories Jesus told that relate to our finances in some way. And today I am going to kick us off by teaching from Mark 12. Mark 12 opens with a parable. This is a story with a moral for us to hear, kind of like a fable. And Mark 12 starts and ends with teaching on finances, which means that there's like a connection among the things happening in Mark 12. Let's start with verse 1. Then Jesus began teaching them with stories. A man planted a vineyard. He built a wall around it. He dug a pit for pressing out the grape juice, and he built a lookout tower. Then he leased the vineyard to tenant farmers, and he moved to another country. At the time of the grape harvest, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the crop. But the farmers grabbed the servant, beat him up, and sent him back empty-handed. The owner then sent another servant, but they insulted him and beat him over the head. The next servant he sent was killed. Others he sent were either beaten or killed, until there was only one left, his son, whom he loved dearly. The owner finally sent him, thinking, surely they will respect my son. But the tenant farmers said to each other, here comes the heir to his estate, Let's kill him and get the estate for ourselves. And so they grabbed him and murdered him and threw his body out of the vineyard. Well, what do you suppose the owner of the vineyard would do? Jesus asked. I'll tell you, he will come and kill those farmers and lease the vineyard to others. Didn't you ever read this in the scriptures? And he quotes from the Psalms here. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. And it is wonderful to see. Well, the religious leaders wanted to arrest Jesus because they realized he was telling the story against them. They were the wicked farmers. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. So today we start off with a pretty sad story. We have the story of this really kind farmer and these unbelievably wicked tenants who are living on his land. Where do we fall in the story? Well, the first thing that's clear in this story is that everything we have is given to us by God. And God has made us stewards or caretakers of what is ultimately God's. There's a running theme in the Bible and in Jesus' teaching that we're not the owners of what we have. We are taking care of it. But it is against human nature for us to live like this. By nature, we seek to build up our own wealth to control or own what is ultimately God's anyway. We protect ourselves and our clan, our people first, even to the point of conflict and violence when anybody tries to take anything that we think is ours. The war in Ukraine is just the most recent example of people battling for control of something that we're just here to take care of in the first place. 
But God is patient and kind, like the farmer here. God tries every means possible to send us the message. In the Old Testament, we see God sending prophets, messengers, to remind the people to come back to God again and again and again. And usually those prophets say, come back to God and stop mistreating the poor, right? And again and again, the people of God ignore, attack, and even kill and murder the messengers from God. But this does not deter God. God says, you know what? I have my son who I love, and I'm going to send him to show these people the path to eternal life, which is where I'm calling them. And because of the message of Jesus Christ, the political and religious leaders of his day put him to death, just like the son in the story that Jesus shares in this passage. Jesus is proclaiming a message of warning for the religious and political leaders in Jerusalem. He's telling them, it is time to give up what you have taken for yourself. It is time to give yourself and what you have back to God. It's all God's in the first place. And ultimately, that is the message that gets Jesus killed. The leaders are threatened by Jesus' teaching and popularity. They're worried they're going to lose their status and position, or Rome is going to think this guy is a rebel, and they're going to come murder-stomp all of us, because that is what Rome did to rebels back in the day. And so they have Jesus killed. They fulfill the very story that Jesus is sharing with them as the Son of God. Thankfully, there is also a message of victory in this passage. Jesus is rejected, but he is ultimately resurrected. The part of this passage that says the stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone is a prophecy from the Psalms. And Jesus says here that this is a prophecy he himself is going to fulfill. Through the resurrection of Christ, all of us who follow have a new foundation. Jesus is the first stone, the stone you build around. Back in the day, All of us become connected to that living stone when we declare Jesus is alive and Jesus is the Lord. And so this stone, which was rejected, is Christ calling us to give ourselves and all we have back to God. And that is the foundation of eternal humanity. The next passage in Mark 12 is also about money. Verse 13. Later, the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You're impartial and don't play any favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? So in this story, The religious and political leaders are addressing the core issue that actually gives them their status in their culture. Most of these leaders support the Roman government, which is corrupt and violent and hated among the people. At the same time, they know that supporting the government is super unpopular with most of those people. And so they try to put Jesus in the same trap that they think they have to live in. They try to make him commit to a side in the political debate of their time. And how do they do it? By asking him to address money. Because our money does actually reflect where our heart is. They think that if Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, 
he'll be in trouble with Rome. And if he says, do pay the taxes, he'll be in trouble with the people. And they don't see any other way. They think they've got him trapped. Let's continue the passage. Jesus saw through their hypocrisy. And he said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. And his answer completely amazed them. So Jesus answers their trap question, but not with the answer they're looking for. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what belongs to God. Well, what belongs to Caesar? You could argue that coins with his face on them are his property. You could argue that taxes are his property. And so what Jesus is saying is safe with the political side. But what belongs to God? Everything. The Bible says the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. God says in the Psalms that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Jesus uses their question about money designed to trap him into taking sides to remind them of God's holiness. In light of God owning everything, paying taxes is nothing. And so he hasn't blessed giving money to the Roman government, although he does pay a tax in a different story. And he hasn't blessed refusing to give money to the Roman government, although they are the ones who sentence him to death. Now, in the next verses in this chapter, which is kind of at the heart of this overall passage, Jesus teaches about the resurrection and about the most important commandment, which those of us who come regularly to River Heights Vineyard know because it's the purpose of our church. It is to love God and love people, and that is what we are about here as a church. And I want you to remember that in the Hebrew Scriptures, what's placed next to what really means something. When Jesus starts by teaching about finances repeatedly, and then he talks about the resurrection and the greatest commandment, and then goes back to speaking about finances repeatedly, this means something. Eternity and love are super relevant to how we relate to money. Jesus teaches, for example, that money that blesses the poor becomes eternal treasure. We can, by doing good for the poor, convert money that lasts for a moment into something that lasts forever. That is amazing. And the Bible teaches repeatedly in the New Testament, if you say you love someone and do not help them when they are in need, you are kidding yourself, and that is useless. And so by talking about resurrection and the great commandment, Jesus is not going off topic. He is speaking to what actually goes on in our hearts when we deal with our finances. When our heart is given to God, we become generous. God's love is generous. The most memorized verse in the New Testament is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whoever believes in him would never perish but would live forever. The most memorized verse in the world is that God loves so much that he gives. Just like the farmer in our opening story, God gives everything to us to care for. God gives us our possessions, our lands, and our very lives. God is a super generous farmer. And God asks us to love God and love people 
in return. That's the greatest commandment. Our loving creator invites us to spend our lives living in response to God's first love. And so our connection to generosity, the reason for how these stories are arranged, our connection to generosity runs right through resurrection and the great commandment. But I can't actually teach it all this morning, so we're going to skip the middle. And we're going to go straight to the tail end of the chapter. In verse 38, Jesus returns to teaching about our relationship with money in two parts. Let's go to verse 38. Jesus also taught, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces. And they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. So the teachers of religious law are the most important people in this culture. These are the people who have dedicated their lives to understanding the Old Testament of the Bible and are incredibly good at it to the point where people want to hear what they have to say about it. And what has happened is, as people have respected and built them up, they have come to emphasize their own importance. And as far as I can see, that is normal for leaders in just about every culture that I've ever heard of. These folks are famous, and they're important, and everybody wants to know them. But there is a problem with their show of leadership. Sure, they know the law, but they have come up with spiritualized reasons to break the law. As an example, they've been teaching that if you give your money to God, you don't have to give your money to those in need, like the Bible says. Can you hear how awful that is? You're telling people that the way to worship the God who cares about the vulnerable and those in need is to take money that you're supposed to help them with and give it to God instead. That is cheating the command of God, and cheating is wrong. Making a show out of your faithfulness is gross when you are doing it to look good instead of honoring your commandment to love people, most especially those in need. In this case, they have taken property from the most vulnerable people in their culture. Widows had no rights, no protections, and nothing to stand on. They're taking what they own and using the money to make themselves look good. And Jesus says, severe punishment will follow because God takes this seriously. Do not be stingy with people and generous to God because that is wrong, and God will hold you to account. Far better to just be generous to both. We're going to live for eternity, and God's greatest command is to love God and to love people. Chapter 12 closes with the whole reason that I'm preaching from this passage today. One of my favorite stories related to money in the whole New Testament. Verse 41. Jesus sat down near the collection box in the temple. That's like the plate we pass around, right? It's the way you can give to the community of God's work. And he watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Jesus called his disciples to him and he said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, But she, 
poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. Now, this is a widow. This is exactly the kind of woman that the religious leaders have been cheating out of what they own. This is one of those who have been devoured. She is nearly destitute. The two coins she gives adds up to about a dollar for an American or three cents for any of the billion people living off two dollars a day. And yet Jesus makes her the star. He makes her the center of the story because God sees everyone's giving. But through Jesus, God lives up this woman particularly because her generosity is complete. She has received from God and she gives everything back to God. Now, I love this story in part because it assures us God sees the good that you do. Every act of generosity to God or to the poor is seen by God, and God knows when it's a real sacrifice. There is blessing that comes out of giving out of our overflow, giving out of the extra money we have, but according to Jesus, the one who gives the most isn't determined by how much you give, but by how much of what you have you give. And this woman gave everything that she had. Now, we're in the middle of a season where our church's finances need God's provision. I am not here to say this passage means you should give everything you have to the church, okay? Just so we're clear on that. I am here to say God blesses your generosity and especially sees and blesses sacrificial generosity. And I am here to ask you to pray and ask God how God would have you respond to the financial need here. We do our best to use our ministry in service to the community and most especially the poor. And we want these ministries to thrive, of course, because of our time and our talents. We want our ministry to thrive because of loving relationships we develop as we gather with formerly homeless families from Cahill Place to the north, or people coming to eat at Loaves and Fishes, or people coming to work the 12 steps with Celebrate Recovery. At the same time, we want to share practically with those in need, and that requires money. Money to keep the building open, money to create hospitable space, money to keep the kitchen running. The dishwasher broke for the third time this year. It's a less expensive break this time, only $312. Hallelujah, right? It takes money to keep the kids in a safe place while their parents are attending a 12-step meeting, and so on and so on. Now, I had a friend who some years ago made a pledge toward the building we are now sitting in. We asked people the same thing we're asking now. Would you pray and see if God would have you give? And he made a pledge, and then he hit a financial rough spot. And I told him, uh, you, you don't give money you don't have unless God tells you to do that. I'm not going to mess with God. But if God has not said to do that, don't give money you don't have. And sometime later, he told me, I feel bad that I'm not giving anything. And I told him, well, that matters. Since you feel bad, and I don't want you feeling bad, how about giving five bucks a week or five bucks a month? That way you won't be doing nothing and you won't be giving away money you don't have. And he did that and he said it felt a lot better. And his giving counted just as much as mine, which came during a season where we had more than enough, if it did not count for more than mine. Sometimes even when we're poor, it feels better to give. That has always been the case for me in my life. When I think about the times I've taken acts of generosity when I've been broke as dirt, uh, gosh, that makes me smile. I want to share one more story with you as we close. 
We have a quarterly meeting here that we call Leader Care. We invite our 60 or so core leaders, anybody who's leading anything, uh, to come here, pray, receive prayer, be cared for. A lot of times leaders do more caring than being cared for. And at our most recent gathering, I shared uh, the need for God's provision in order for us to get back to financial health. When we ask the church for special giving like this, we follow a model from the Bible because we think it really makes sense. First, the pastors pray, and we ask God, how much do you want us to give? And our pastors have committed to giving $4,000 beyond our normal giving over six months. Then we ask our leaders to come, and we share that with them, and we say, would you pray and ask God how much God would have you live? And our leaders are in the process of discerning and deciding, and they'll get pledge cards as well. And then we come to the whole church and we say, hey, we want to lead the way we want to give first, but we're inviting you to pray and to ask God along with us how much God would have you do. And a woman came from Cahill Place, the housing to our north, which is meant for families experiencing chronic homelessness. And she came in while we were worshiping, and she stayed through the talk. And we've had some connection with her through the months. She's an incredibly joyful and enjoyable person. She was even here first service. Afterwards, she came up to me and gave me a filled-out pledge card. She made a pledge to give regularly toward our need for the next six months. And I felt just like crushingly moved. And I also felt God saying, I am in this thing. She heard about our need, and she didn't even need time to go home and pray. Out of what she has, she's giving generously more than most, if not every one of us, will be able to give out of our possessions. Now, again, I'm not asking anyone to give everything they have here. I am saying I believe God is inviting us to generosity, and I'm asking you, would you pray and ask God how God would have you respond? And while we do this, I do not want to forget those who have less than us. Everybody here has got more than somebody. You woke up in America, right? Everybody here is doing well compared to someone you know. If you want to make a gift toward those in need, you can do so as your homework for this week. Find someone and do something financially generous who is not in as good a place as you are. Or you can make a gift to the Compassion Fund. That is our fund, which is exclusively and wholly dedicated to helping people in need or crisis. And our Compassion Fund has reached approximately zero, and we have people in need that we're not able to help right now. If you want to give to the Compassion Fund, you can use the envelopes in the back or push pay on your phone has a category that says Compassion Fund. I want to invite you to stand as you are able and the worship team to come forward and lead us into the closing of our service at this time. Uh, I have three tips for you to put the Word of God into practice as we are receiving it, and I want you to take the homework seriously this week. Tip number one is read Mark 12. You get to read about the resurrection and the great commandment, and its connection is visible there to all this teaching about finances. Tip number two is to pray, offer yourself and everything you have to God. God forbid that we would be these wicked tenants where God says, hey, I want you to give some of your stuff toward my purposes, and we insult, beat up, ignore, attack the message from God. And so the way to counteract that is to pray and say, God, you know what? You can have me and all of mine because I trust you, you're loving, you've got my back. 
Tip number three is do something good for someone poor, specifically with your money. There is a funny thing that happens when we do our finance series every single time. Multiple people are like, well, you know, we need to talk about giving your time and your talents too. And it's like, what do you think we talk about all dang year? Like, what have we been teaching around here all the time? We're talking about giving our time and our talents to God week in and week out. If there's, I mean, there aren't too many weeks where tip number three doesn't have something to do with that, right? And so I just want to note, there is a specific focus on finances in Scripture. And so your homework this week has a specific focus. Do something financially good for somebody who has less than you do, whether it's through the church or whether it's through your own prayer and your own life. I want to lead us in prayer as we transition to worship and prayer time. Prayer and worship are the most important things you can do when we gather on a Sunday. If you're on the worship or prayer team, you could come stand up here and be ready to pray for folks. We would pray for anyone, for God to bless you. These folks are trained and they pray good. And the Bible says the earnest prayer of a righteous person matters. And so maybe this morning you have something where you really need God's help. We'd love to pray into that. Uh, I will lead us as we transition in prayer. So God, first off, we are so thankful for your unbelievable generosity in making us caretakers of everything you've made. Thank you for setting humanity here on the earth to care for the world. Thank you for giving us our lives, our possessions, our lands, our freedoms, our friends. Thank you for your incredible generosity and thank you for the gift of your son. In response to your great love, God, we offer you ourselves and everything we have. It's all yours anyway. We ask that you would give us ears sensitive to your message, to love you and love people with our hearts, our time, our talents, and our possessions. Help us to be faithful stewards who respond to your message with generosity, who live like you do. Help us to know that you've got our back, that your generosity is real. God, we got so many folks who are living without in this time, all around the world and right in our yard. We ask you to provide, and to the extent you want to provide through us, help us to be generous people. Give us specific words from your spirit, God. Specific people, specific numbers, specific actions, real-life stuff where we can demonstrate your love. Amen. Uh, come and receive prayer as God leads.